Last week we talked about David and his great sin in sleeping with Bathsheba and in killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah. In case you think that I might somehow have been exaggerating just how wicked that sin was, look at this passage in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. This is written years after David died. For David had done the right thing in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Wow. Years later, long after he's dead, it's still on his record. Now, don't take from this verse that David only ever sinned once. He did one bad thing. That's not what this means. He had lots of sin in his life. But this just points out the singular nature of what he did in this case. To take his friend's wife and kill his friend. Here it is years after he's died, still on his record. Now this is stunning to me. All that David did, trusting in God to overcome Goliath. Trusting in the Lord not to take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. Not killing Nabal. Allowing God to use him to win great victories for Israel. Being so kind to Mephibosheth. Wanting to build a temple for the Lord so that God's presence would be in in Israel all the days of his life. All this good that David did does not erase the fact that he did this thing to Uriah. Last week we said that God's grace is greater than our sins. That God's forgiveness is stronger than our wickedness. But what does that mean? Why is this still on David's record? If God has forgiven David, why is this here? Is there a book somewhere that has my name in it that says Jim Samra tried to serve the Lord and was a good person? except for that thing he did in 2002? Is there a book that has your name in it that says, Jane loved Jesus, except for that time she decided to have an abortion? John was a good Christian, except for the affair that he had. When we say that God forgives us, what do we mean? Why is it that David still has this on his record? Well, we want to explore the concept of that forgiveness today. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 32. Psalm 32. It's page 395 in the church Bible. Psalm 32. We look at Psalm 32 this morning because... This is where David speaks about the forgiveness that he experienced and we think it may very well have been written in response to the forgiveness he experienced for the sin that he committed with Uriah and with Bathsheba. 
We don't know that for sure. But Psalm 32 is David expressing his thoughts and understanding about what it means to be forgiven by God for his sin. And so this morning we want to look at this psalm to try to better understand what it means when we say that in Christ God forgives us. Look with me in verse number one. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Now stop right there for a moment. The psalm begins with the word blessed. What the word blessed means is to be blessed is to be favored by God. To have God smile down upon you. The blessed man is the man that everybody else looks at and says, I wish I was that guy. I wish I was her. Look at the way the Lord has treated her. I wish that was me. To be blessed is to have heaven open wide and God dump out his goodness on your life. Now, this is the second psalm to begin with the phrase, blessed is the person who. The first psalm that begins this way is psalm number one, the very first psalm. In that psalm, David writes, blessed are the law keepers. Blessed are the people who obey the law. Now that makes good sense to us. You obey, good things happen. You do what God asks you to do. He opens heaven wide and pours out his blessings in your life. We look around and we see a person whose God's blessings are upon them and they say, hey, look, I've been trying to keep the word of the Lord all my life. And we say, that makes good sense. Blessed are those who keep the law. But this psalm actually starts, blessed are the lawbreakers. That's what the word transgressions and sins mean. Not blessed are the law keepers, but blessed are the law breakers. People who disobey God. Now, wait a minute. That means that people who disobey God, who do the wrong thing, that God is smiling down on them, that God is favorable toward them, that people look at the law breaker and say, boy, I wish I was that guy. That people look at somebody who has disobeyed God and say, wow, the heavens have opened wide and God is just dumping out his goodness on the lawbreaker? Well, that's what this says. Blessed is the one who breaks God's law. I say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean all lawbreakers are blessed? No. Not all lawbreakers are blessed. But some are. Which lawbreakers experience the favor of the Lord? Well, Psalm 32 gives five characteristics or descriptions of the kind of lawbreaker who is blessed by God. Not every lawbreaker is blessed, but there are some who are. And Psalm 32 gives us five descriptions of the kind of lawbreaker who experiences the overwhelming favor of God. I'm going to run quickly through the first four, and then we're going to spend more time on the fifth one. Look in the latter half, or the last phrase of verse 2, to find our first description. 
in whose spirit is no deceit. The first description of the kind of lawbreaker who is blessed by God is the person who has stopped lying about being a lawbreaker. That's what in whose spirit there is no deceit means. The problem with sin is we like to deceive ourselves into thinking we're not sinning. This was David's deal. He was trying to rationalize, remember? He was trying to rationalize to Joab, hey, look, this thing we did to Uriah together, this isn't that bad. That's what we do too. We lie to ourselves about the sexual relationship we're engaged in. We lie and say, well, it must be okay. When we know full well the Bible has said that sexual activity outside the bounds of heterosexual marriage is simply wrong, but we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, it's not that bad. We lie to others. We don't want anybody else to know the anger we exhibit behind closed doors in our family. We try to keep that from everybody else in the church or everybody else in the neighborhood. We are trying to deceive them into thinking we're good, upstanding people. We lie to God and try to pretend we're not stealing time and money from him. But the lawbreaker who is blessed is the one who stops lying about being a lawbreaker. (laughs) Who says, yeah, that's me. That's me. I do those things. Second description of the lawbreaker who is blessed, verses three and four. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David's second description of the kind of lawbreaker who is blessed is the person who experiences conviction and suffering for their sin. Conviction and suffering, it's the person who wraps their car around a tree because they have been engaging in proud thoughts and God's trying to wake them up and get their attention. It's the person whose life has fallen apart because they've chosen to engage in a behavior that God does not approve of. It's the person who feels God's hand weighing heavily upon them. It's the person who, even if it's simply you lose your temper with your children and while you're yelling at them, you see the fear in their eyes and you think to yourself, what's the matter with me? Why am I such a monster? Why am I doing this? That conviction that impulse, that sense in which God's hand is pressing down on me. Waking up one day and realizing, you know what, I don't have any friends because I've spent my whole life gossiping about other people and trying to use them and God has given me what I deserved. David says the lawbreaker who's experienced conviction and suffering at the hands of God for his sin That's the kind of lawbreaker who's blessed by God. Third description, verse five. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The person who confesses their sin to God. David says, I sinned against the Lord. 
That's the kind of lawbreaker that God blesses. Not only the person who stops lying about being a lawbreaker and who's experienced conviction for being a lawbreaker, but the lawbreaker who actually confesses to God that he's a lawbreaker. Fourth description, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And now here we switch to God speaking. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. What those verses are is an invitation from God. The lawbreaker who is blessed by the Lord, the lawbreaker who experiences the infinite favor of God in their life is the one who realizes that sin has separated them from God and that God is inviting them back into a relationship. While David was distant from the Lord and God's hand was pressing down on David and David's life was falling apart because of what he did with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah, During that time, God sent Nathan. Remember that? The Lord sent Nathan to David. It was an invitation. David, come back. David, come back to me. When you feel that conviction in your soul for the sin that you've committed, that's God inviting you back. When your friend sits down with you and says, hey, look, don't be mad at me, but I just got to share with you what I see in your life and tells you about the laziness that he sees in your life. That's God inviting you back. And the lawbreaker who is blessed, not every lawbreaker is blessed, but the ones who are, are those who hear and respond to the invitation of God, come home, come back, come back to me. Those are the first four descriptions that David gives us to make sure that we understand, look, God does actually bless lawbreakers, but it's a certain kind of lawbreaker. The one who stops lying about being a lawbreaker, the one who experiences conviction and suffering at the hands of God for breaking the law, the one who confesses their lawbreaking to God, and the one who God invites to come back and responds to that invitation. That leads us to the fifth description that David gives us. It's in verse 10, and here's where we want to spend more time this morning. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Now, when I first read through this psalm, this verse confused me. I finally understood what was going going on in this psalm when I understood that the wicked, that David's talking about himself here. He's not talking about some other class of people. He's talking about himself. That's what these first four descriptions are actually about, to get you to the point that David realizes that he's the wicked. 
You see, as long as we think that the wicked are, as long as I think they're you and not me, as long as we think the wicked are out there but not in here, as long as we think the wicked are the people that we read about in the newspaper or here on the news but not the people that we know, once we realize we're the wicked, once we get the fact that, wait a minute, that's me, I'm wicked, then this psalm began to make sense to me. David is saying that when we are wicked, we experience, whoa, bad things happen to us. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. The fifth description of the kind of lawbreaker who is blessed is the wicked one who trusts in God. The wicked person who trusts in God. Now what does this mean? Well, the Apostle Paul actually explains to us what this psalm means. And that phrase, the wicked who trusts in God. And he does so in Romans 4. Let me show you the passage. Romans 4. However, to the man who does not work. But look at this but trusts God who justifies the who? The wicked. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What psalm is that? Psalm 32. This is our psalm. David is commenting, I mean, sorry, Paul is commenting on our psalm, Psalm 32. You see the phrase, but trusts God who justifies the wicked? That's verse 10. That's what we're looking at. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. What Paul is saying is, to the man who does not work, he's acknowledging, hey, look, David was a great guy. David did lots of great things. But David's good stuff would never counteract the wicked thing he did. Same thing is true of Paul. Nothing Paul was going to do for the rest of his life in serving Jesus was ever going to erase the fact that he persecuted Christians. Paul's a wicked man. There was no work he was going to be able to do that would make up for what he did. Listen, nothing David did was going to bring Uriah back from the dead. No good that that David did was ever going to counteract the fact that he had stolen Uriah's wife. There was nothing he was going to be able to do to fix that problem. Paul was in the same boat. And you and I are in the same boat that we're wicked, that nothing we will ever do, we will do good, but no good that we will ever do will wipe out the bad that we've done. That just like in 1 Kings 15, 5, it could say about us that Jim obeyed the Lord and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord except for this thing. Paul says, you can't work away 
the evil that you've done. But trusts God who justifies the wicked. Now, what does it mean to justify? Well, David actually provides a perfect example for what this looks like. What does it mean to justify the wicked? If you go and do a search in the Bible for the name Uriah, like Uriah the Hittite, you're going to find a lot of uses of the name in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. That was the story we looked at last week. His name's all over that story. The next place you'll find his name mentioned is 1 Kings 15.5, the passage I showed you at the beginning of the sermon. He's mentioned one other time in the Bible. And it's in the New Testament. And I want to show you that reference. Turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. This is the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Notice how it begins. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we got a whole genealogy here. This is Jesus' genealogy. Look down to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David... David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. There it is again. David's sin with Bathsheba and in murdering Uriah right there. But you know what's so interesting about this? This is not David's genealogy. It's Jesus' genealogy. Here's David's sin, not listed in connection with David, but listed in connection with Jesus. Now, when when you think of Jesus, do you think of him as having slept with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah? No, nobody thinks of him that way. But look, it's right here. It's on his permanent record. In the very first chapter in which he's being introduced, this sin is on his record. It's in his genealogy. But you know what the amazing thing about this is? This is the very last time that Uriah's name is mentioned in the Bible. 59 more times David will be mentioned in the New Testament. And never once is he associated again with Uriah's sin. It's gone. Where did it go? It's been put onto Jesus's record. This is what David means. This is what Paul means when he says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. The sin's not been forgotten. David slept with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah, but he's blessed because God no longer attributes that sin to his account. Where is it? It's on Jesus' account. It's now in Jesus' permanent record. 
David doesn't die for sleeping with Bathsheba or for killing Uriah. Jesus does. This is what it means to be justified. It's for God to take our sin and not count it on our record anymore. That he takes it off our record and puts it on Jesus' record. You see, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 15, David did all sorts of good stuff, but this was still on his record. But in the New Testament, the sin's still there. It hasn't been forgotten. It's just now permanently been put on Jesus' record, which means it's no longer on David's record. That's why David says, I'm a blessed lawbreaker because my lawbreaking is no longer on my record. Back to Psalm 32. Verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Listen, no matter what you or I have ever done, God loves us. Regardless of the affair, the ministry failure, the way we may have messed up our children, the cheating, how we've ignored God, whatever it may be, God still loves us. And what David says is, is for the person who has broken the law, but trusts in the God who loves us and justifies the wicked, well, look what happens in verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. David is wicked in verse 10. He's righteous by verse 11. What happened? God took his sin and placed it on Jesus' account and David has now been blessed. And by verse 11, he is experiencing heaven opening wide and the blessings of God pouring down on him. And this is mind-blowing to him. Yes, we all get blessed are the law keepers. That makes perfect sense. What David is realizing, what Paul is saying, what I'm saying is, but blessed are the lawbreakers. That David is actually blessed. That heaven is opened wide and God is smiling down and David is rejoicing. Rejoicing. He's not forgotten what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. But God's opened his eyes to realize that he's taken that off of David's account and put that on Jesus' account. And David says, oh my Lord, blessed is the man who the Lord does not put his sins on his account anymore, but gives them instead to Jesus. Last week when I was finished the sermon about the wickedness of what David had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. A man uh, and his wife came down to talk to me. Man doesn't go to our church. Uh, he happened to be in town for a conference. He felt compelled to come to Calvary that Sunday morning and he came down front after the 1115 service with tears in his eyes. And he said to me, I'm, I'm David. 
12 years ago, I had an affair. And I'm here to testify about God's grace. And so he shared with me about how he's now a worship pastor. And that God is just blessing his life and he just, he feels so undeserving. And he's just describing these amazing blessings. Well, I heard that he's a worship pastor. So I said, well, when you think about God's forgiveness of your sin, what songs come to mind? Well, he picked before the throne of God above. And then he's going to, he picked two other songs that we're going to sing when the sermon is over. But he also sent me this testimony uh, in an email when he sent me those songs. He said, thank you again for your sermon today. We met you after the 1115 service. I was the David you spoke about today. I was right with you when you said that Satan wants to make us think it is hopeless. There is nothing beyond the devastation of our sin. For a time, I listened to that lie. I felt very bad I did not tell you that the Lord in his grace saved our marriage. I wanted to make sure you knew that because you met my wife and I wanted you to know God showed extraordinary grace through her life. She never once thought of divorcing me, though she could have biblically. It is a further testimony to the power of God in restoration and reconciliation. She was devastated, shamed, hurt, wounded by my sin against God, her, my family, and church. But through it all, she trusted the Lord, prayed for me, stayed with me, and was helped and supported by our church family. I could share a good deal more, a great deal more if you would like, but suffice it to say you are correct when you say we underestimate the depth and power of the grace of God. And I might add the power of a church that acted in truth and grace. I never imagined God would still want me in service to him in ministry in the local church. But he did after a period of time. I am nothing, he is everything. If my sin can show the wonders of his grace and the power of his reconciling work, then that is what we want. When this man came down to tell me his story, I didn't think of him as an adulterer. His wife doesn't think of him as an adulterer. And God doesn't think of him as an adulterer. Yes, that act still happened. It's just no longer associated with him. And what he was down front saying is you can't even imagine how much God has blessed my life. You can't even imagine what God is doing for me. Then in many ways in the past 12 years, he says our marriage is so much better than it ever was, not because he deserves it, but because God is kind and gracious and that he simply ripped open heaven and dumped out his blessing. That's the point. What God is saying is, look, this is what I'm doing for you. The sins that you've committed are not on your permanent record. They've been given to Jesus. And now God is blessing you. If you are a person who stopped lying about being wicked, who's actually been convicted and suffering for your wickedness. If you've confessed your wickedness to the Lord, if you've responded to God's invitation, and if you're trusting that it's God who's got to deal with your sin, then this is you. 
This is your story. When God looks at you, he doesn't see that abortion. He doesn't see that affair. He doesn't see that pornography. He doesn't see that addiction. He doesn't see that failure as a parent or as a grandparent. He doesn't see any of those things. Those have all been given to Christ. When he sees you, he sees you as the object of his blessing, his favor, his smiling face looking down on you. Rejoice, that's you. And you say, but what if I didn't confess enough? What if I haven't suffered enough? What if I didn't pay? What if I didn't think enough about it? What if I didn't? That's us trusting in our ability. If you're here this morning and you say, I, I, I want it to be given to Jesus, then it is. If you say, if only that could be true, if only God could look at me and not see that sin anymore. If you think that, then it's true. Then God has done that for you. He simply does not associate that sin with you anymore. Nowhere in the New Testament is David ever identified as the person who killed Uriah. Never again because God doesn't view him that way. The only person in the New Testament who's associated with the death of Uriah is Jesus Christ. And if you by faith say, look, I, there's nothing I can do about this. All the good that I do, it's never going to erase the bad that I've done. But if you're willing to trust in God's unfailing love, then never again will God ever associate those sins with you or with me. He will never again think of us as having done those things. It's not that they're forgotten, it's that they're given to Christ. And God's message to you and I today is rejoice, lawbreakers. Rejoice because the blessings of God are poured out on those who've broken the law, but who trust in God's unfailing love, the God who justifies the wicked. Let's pray together. Lord, who can fathom what you have done for us? God, I don't even think that our minds can logically wrap themselves around the idea that our sin is not associated with us anymore. Lord, please, through your spirit, would you cause us to be able to see this? Would you help us to see ourselves not the way we see ourselves or the world sees ourselves, but the way you see us? Lord God, it's unbelievable to me that you do not think of David as having done these sins and that you do not think of me as having done my sins. God, I pray that if there are any here who are struggling with understanding what it means to be forgiven, that you would help them to realize, Lord God, that you have separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that you remember them no more. God, we don't think you have amnesia. We just think they're not on our accounts anymore. They're on Jesus's. And Jesus, we praise you that here this week, this holy week in which you came to rescue us, in which you came to save us, that you came to save us in the greatest possible way, to save us from our sins, to save us from separation from God, and we praise your name. Thank you.